Let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome. Here we are. It's Friday, <laughs> and uh, well, uh, actually, these days Friday, I do get a little more R and R on the weekends. But it used to be people would say, "Oh boy, it's Friday," and so that's just that's when I start working. But not anymore. I, you know, somebody asked me if I was allergic to anything, and I only said hard work. But let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and to the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let us open the big book on the coffee table, the Bible. And let's go out to, let's first go to the gospel, Luke, the 14th chapter, the first and sixth verse, to the sixth verse. On a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people were observing him carefully. Um, you know, Jesus was invited to people's homes, and he was invited to the Pharisees' homes, but was to keep to, to, to figure out who this guy was. Um, you know, when Jesus was asked the question, is it legal, legitimate for a man to divorce his wife? That was a standard Pharisee question because you see there were different, there were different schools of Pharisees. He had different religious parties, political religious parties in, in the Holy Land at the time of Christ. You had the Sadducees who were mostly taken from priestly families. They were very influential, very wealthy. And at the time of Christ, they pretty much controlled the Sanhedrin, the uh, Jewish Supreme Court. And then there would be the uh, Pharisees, which was the Pharisees were not clergy. It was a political party. Uh, in fact, is the clergy were usually Sadducees, the priestly families. So you had the Pharisees who were the 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 progressives. They were the party of the common man. They they tried to involve everybody in the in the life of the temple. That's why they had all this emphasis on the rules for temple holiness. The Sadducees said, well, we'll take care of religion. Don't you worry about it. But the Sadducees, or the Pharisees rather, said that the law of Moses in its strictest interpretations applies to everyone. And they thought of ways to help people get around, around it. But they wanted to involve everyone in the life of the temple. Then you had the Essenes and, and the Dead Sea sectaries. There were probably numerous groups of those, each arguing a little bit with the other. 
And they rejected the temple altogether, saying the temple, the monarchy, and the priesthood were corrupt. And they were waiting in, in the desert, some of them, and, and in certain neighborhoods for the Messiah to come and straighten everything out. Then you had the, the zealots, who were a political, a group of political separatists and fanatics, and so on. So you had at least four or five parties. And the fifth party would have been after Pentecost, the Notsri, which were the Christians, the, the Nazarites, the Nazarenes. So you had all these different parties. Now, Jesus, you know, people think that the Pharisees and Jesus were loggerheads. They really weren't. We see the Pharisees sending to Jesus to say, be careful, Herod is trying to get you. And we see Gamaliel, who's a ranking Pharisee, defending Peter and Peter and uh, John in the uh, their trial in the Sanhedrin and so on. So the Pharisees, when Jesus is arguing them, it's an argument among people who are kind of playing on the same page. And this question that I mentioned, that, that uh, uh, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife? There, Even within the Pharisees, there were two major schools. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Hillel was the liberal. Uh, he would allow you to divorce your wife if you... Um, um, if she put too much salt in the stew or if she argued in the street. Uh, whereas uh, Shammai, the Rabbi Shammai, he would, he, you know, he essentially forbade divorce. So they were asking Jesus, which school are you in? The school of Shammai and the school of, uh, of Hillel? And Jesus answers, I'm not in either school. So that's the context of this. So... In front of him, there was a man suffering from dropsy. That's kind of interesting because the, the word for dropsy is, I wonder if people wonder, what is dropsy? Hydropikos. It means edema, swelling. He was, he had, uh, uh, circulation problems. He had swell. That's what the word means in Greek. Hydropsy. Hydropikos. He was, he was whole, retaining water, but in a way that, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever known someone who had serious edema. It's a, it's a real curse. And, and very, very dangerous. So there's a man suffering from dropsy. Uh, Jesus spoke to the scholars of the law and, of, and the Pharisees in reply, asking, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath or not? And of course it was not. Uh, the Pharisees uh, um, pointed out that to cure someone was the work of a doctor. And thus, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't heal someone on Sabbath. You could you could uh, save his life if a, f a fellow was laying there bleeding to death. You could tie up the wound so he didn't die. You could save a life on um, Sabbath, but you couldn't heal. Bind up the wound so he didn't bleed to death, but you weren't to put any ointment on it that would make it better. It had to wait till Sunday, first day of the week, and they kept silent. <laughs> you see, this is the back and forth that's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. What school are you in? And he, he said, uh, he took the man and after he had healed him, dismissed him. In other words, he said, I'm not in the school of Hillel. I'm not in the school of Shammai. I'm not in a scene. I'm not a Sadducee. I'm the son of God and I'm going to heal this guy. In other words, he wasn't just arguing theology. He was changing lives and he saw more deeply into this. He saw that this man's life was in danger because of his illness. So he saved his life. Then he says, who among you, if you're a son, or ox, <laughs> interesting um, juxtaposition there. If your son or ox falls into a cistern, would not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. They actually had a discussion of how one could rescue an animal from a pit 
without breaking Sabbath. Apparently, if you put pillows into the pit and so that the, the animal or the sun could walk up the pillows from the pit and get out, that was okay. You couldn't dig down. You couldn't pull them up with a rope. You had to drop things into the pit. Uh, I don't know how they came to that conclusion, but if I recall properly, that was it. And Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous. And, you know, somebody wrote me a letter, aren't we a little bit pharisaical as Catholics with all these rules? No, the rules are very important. However, the object of the rule is always to be thought of. Um, For instance, what would be a good example? Uh, One has a Sunday obligation, but if one is caring for the sick... One is, uh, uh, what's the word? One is uh, absolved from that obligation. Now, it it has to be a significant illness, but the point is that that the rules that we follow, and I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are immutable; they reflect the nature of God. I've talked about that a lot, but but um, there are there are certain rules that that. Um, that are for a purpose, and that's a good example of one. When must I go to Mass? If you're ill, you don't have to go to Mass. But it would be good if you watched it on television or listened to it if you can. Uh, if you're ill, you don't have to fast. That sort of thing. That These rules and laws. Now, this is a very dangerous thing to say because it's a bit of a slippery Slope. Oh, I can all give a good excuse not to follow a rule. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. The, the Pharisaical attitude is, how little can I get away with? The attitude of the person who loves the Lord is, how much can I do for the glory of the Lord? You know, I can't do this because, well, my mother-in-law is sick and needs me to take care of her. But I would certainly like to, you know, to go to as many masses as I can, that sort of thing. So it isn't Phariseeism. Phariseeism is a, a, um, a passionate desire to, to make the law so precise that you know exactly how much you can do, no more, no less. Whereas for us, we say, speak, Lord, your servant listens. It's a difference of attitude. We follow rules. Rules are very important. They, they help us to get along with each other, and they orient us to, to moral behavior. But on the other hand, uh, when I make rules for you to follow, well, I may be going too far. All right, let's go to Romans, the ninth chapter, the first verse and following. Yeah, you really have to look at the whole chapter here. Um, St. Paul has just finished the, the eighth chapter, of course, in which he talks about uh, um, the spirit of adoption and, and the glory that's, that's uh, revealed in the children of God. And um, uh, he, that last verse, uh, last two verses, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor present things nor future things nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, he's saying, this is about a relationship. This is not simply about a set of rules to follow. Again, with a similar theme. Now, don't anybody think that I'm saying rules aren't important. Rules, you know, I should thank God every time I see a stop sign or I'm stopped at a stoplight. If it wasn't for the stop sign and the stoplights, I'd be roadkill uh, the way I drive. But 
you have to understand uh, that that um, the rule, the stop sign is there for my benefit. Um, uh, and that's why I obey it. It's for my good and the good of society. Uh, it isn't that it is objectively uh, a thing that is necessary. And, you know, people get all upset because we change rules in the church. And if God is eternal, well, why do we change rules? You know, it used to be we fasted from midnight. Now we and then we fasted for three hours. Now we fast for one little hour before communion. That's not a whole lot of fasting. How come we can change that rule, but we can't change the rule about adultery? One reflects the nature of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God is faithfulness. The other is a disciplinary rule that we that it is imposed on us for the good of the whole community. So, well, then it shouldn't be a sin if we break it. Oh, to disregard the whole community, yes, is sinful. Uh, so rules are, rules. I, I, it's, it's an attitude that we have toward rules. And I'm the one who tries to follow the rules. My job is not to make sure that you're following the rules. It's to make sure that I'm following the rules. All right. <clears throat> I, I hope that's that's fairly clear. But... <sighs> In this in this passage, uh, in from chapter nine, the first verse, Jesus, oh, Jesus rather, I'm saying Paul seems to have jumped into a new theme, and and he doesn't. Uh, there's not no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, oh, that's chapter eight. I'm sorry. I thought why is he repeating that chapter nine? Well, he doesn't. That's because I speak the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing witness. Now, the word for conscience in Greek is exactly the same as Latin. It's synedesis, which means a with knowing and a conscience. Sheans means knowing. Sheo is is the Latin word for uh, I know. So sheans means knowing and con in Latin. When you see a word. Uh, that's preceded by C-O-N or C-O-M, that prefix means with, but it's an intensifier, an intense awareness. Now, the Greek word synedesis, syn is with, and edesis is a knowing, a with knowing. What it refers to is an internal knowledge that is uh, a given. It's You're hardwired to it. Um, that that conscience is something that you can kill, but in order to be free of it, you have to actively kill it, unless you have a serious, serious psychological condition. Uh, if you're if you're a uh, is it a sociopath? Uh, I think the word is a sociopath, and you simply don't have conscience. The idea is when I look at you, I see me. In other words, I realize you're human. Um, uh, that even when I look at the animal world, I realize that that though this animal may not be human, that we share things in common. Abraham Lincoln said, "The ant, the life of an ant, is as precious to it as mine is to me." Uh, that that he would go that far. That's conscience to be able to to realize that I am not alone and that you are like me. And I, if I don't want to be uh, stolen from, I should not steal. If I don't want to be hurt, I should not hurt. So on. Then that is just into us. Then he says, I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart and that I, I wish myself a curse and separate from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin, according to the flesh. Then he talks, he doesn't talk about Jews, he talks about Israelites. There's the adoption. The Jews did not think of themselves as Jews. They thought of themselves as Israelites. If you go to a synagogue, they will call up Cohen to the to the pulpit. 
uh, for certain things. And if there's no one who is a Kohen, a descendant of a priest, they call up Levi, which is a Levite. And then they call up, they don't call up Judah, they call up Israel. Uh, so they don't think of themselves as, I mean, liturgically and technically as, as Jews. Jews are part of Israel. They're, they're the tribe of Judah. And that has come, Israel and Judah have come to be indistinguishable in our times, but there is a distinction. And Paul is saying, he's saying, he's starting off, this is, you know, I'm telling you, you can get along with the Greeks, and this, you should be getting along. But, you know, I love the Jews, and, you know, yeah, they're, they're first up. They, theirs is the adoption, the, the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Theirs are the fathers. That's the word patriarchs is fathers in in, in in the Greek text. And from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah who is God. Uh, they kind of translate it funny here. It, it's pretty clear that he's calling the Messiah God in in the text. Let me let me pull that up. Uh, um, um, let me see. Let me go back one verse here. Um, uh, oh, no, 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 no. Another, another verse. Come on. Um, at any rate, it's pretty clear in the Greek text that he's saying the Messiah is God. Um, uh, that's rather, rather bold. Uh, the Messiah, the Jews weren't expecting God. The Messiah is, is not a divine, but he says here, uh, uh, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who being over all is the blessed God forever and ever. I think he clearly calls Jesus uh, in the text. I think he clearly calls Jesus God. But then he goes on uh, uh, with something very Talmudic. He says, not all, and this is past where we are in the reading, but I think you have to read the rest of the chapter to understand it. It's not as if the word of God has failed, for not all, well, you know, Christianity has not been widely accepted among among the Jews, among Israel. Well, he says, no, not everyone who bears the name of Israel uh, uh, are really Israel. And then he says, they're all children of Abraham because they are his descendants. He says, no, it's through Isaac that descendants will bear your name. Uh, that means not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but children of the promise are counted as descendants. Jesus is a type for Isaac. The rabbis said that Isaac uh, died at 33, and uh, he was a type of Christ, that he was bound and placed on the wood, and so on. Um, that Isaac was not a little, a little baby or a little boy when he was sacrificed. He was a grown man and cooperated with the sacrifice. So the Christians saw this idea of the covenant through Isaac and Isaac being a type of, uh, for Christ that, that, you know, you're not just, the, Abraham had lots of descendants. Not all of them were Israel. And, uh, the ones who are children of the covenant and, that brings us to Mass. People are children of the covenant, which is Mass. So that's why I've written read about Mass a lot. So read that whole chapter. He's saying, I love my fellow Israelites, but face it, not everybody who claims to be Israel is Israel. The descendants of, not all the descendants of Abraham, but the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of the covenant. All right, we're going we're gonna to take a break, and then we will come back with our Mass hysteria. And, uh, um, um, and um, as I love to say, 888 914 9149. 
888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. What a wonderful song. What we we what a wonderful song and I think next time I hear it in the church I'm walking out. It's a delightful melody with very strange lyrics and we're going to look at the lyrics. Uh let's move on to mass hysteria. So uh that's our mass hysteria intro. Um I'm sure you've heard of Arius. I told you about him the other day. He was a priest from Alexandria who thought that uh, he said things like there was a time when the son was not. In other words, he didn't believe that Jesus was co-eternal with the father, that that in the, Rome, the Roman world was very, well, well hierarchical, uh, the, the usual meaning of hierarchy. It was very chain of command. And that's, that's I said that the other day, that's why the creed was written, because... Uh, the Emperor Constantine was a military man. That's what emperor mean, meant, commander, it meant generalissimo. So generalissimo Constantine didn't like this Christian thing about God, his love so much. He, he wanted to know who was in charge. One church, one empire, one emperor, one God. That's it. Well, not quite. It's much more complicated than that. And he gathered the, the church fathers together, and uh, they said, nope, you're wrong. And he said, okay. He was amazing that he was he was able to say, no, no, my view of the nature of God is what you're going to go for. No, he let them say what they believed, and they believed in a trinity of persons. Um, but I think that, that at the same, well, at the same time, I don't think I know, at the same time, this priest from Alexandria in Egypt, Arius, um, he was pretty much on the same page as people who thought, well, that's ridiculous. Three persons and one God. Somebody's got to be greater than the other. They it can't be mutually <laughs> eternal, or then one, it just confuses things. So uh, Arius spread his heresy that Jesus was created in time and then deified, uh, thus creating uh, the relationship with the Father. Um, one of the fathers of the church said, the world awoke one morning to find itself Arian. And um, this caused no end of trouble for centuries. Uh, well, how did Arius spread his heresies through the whole world? He would go down to the docks in Alexandria and teach Christian sailors sea chanties with heretical words. Seriously. And they would, they would fan out through the empire humming these catchy tunes, these wonderful hymns that Arius wrote. And that's what we have here. Um, now this, this wonderful song, which sounds a little bit like a sea chanty, it's sort of, da, 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 da. we are called, we are chosen, we are Christ for one another. What a lovely thought. But I'm not Christ for you. I try. You know, I've often said you can't speak Christ. You have to be Christ. But 
really, you're trying to bring them to Christ. Christ, the Messiah, I'm not the Messiah. I may be Messianic, but I'm not the Messiah. We are promised tomorrow while we are for him today. What does that mean? We're promised to tomorrow. We are sign. We are wonder. We are sower. We are seed. We are harvest. We are hunger. What? We are question. We are creed. Then where can we stand justified? And what can we believe? In no one else but he who suffered. That by the way is bad grammar, but him who suffered. But I want to be snarky about that. Now, there's another song which became very popular, a great song. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who are going to make a better day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's essentially the same thought. You know, that, 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 uh, you know, I'm sorry that I'm I'm really just grinding this axe ceaselessly, but in a way it's repentance on my part. I was right in the middle of all this. And then I had a few shocks and I said, wait a minute, this isn't Christianity. But I was in a church where they sang uh, these wonderful songs um, that... that um, we're replete with bad ideas, anti-Christian ideas. Uh, and, um, you know, this, this wonderful uh, words in the church, uh, in this verse they talk about, uh, in no one else but he who suffered should be him who suffered. Nothing more than he who rose, him who rose, who was justice for the poor, who was rage against the night, who was hope for peaceful people, who was light. They're raging peaceful people, and I knew some peaceful raging people. That was kind of code word in that group, the peaceful people. In other words, us, who were the good guys, who were for peace. And I remember when I was uh, on the peace committee in in the seminary, we had a big fight. Uh, peace committee split down the middle during peace week between those who were nonviolently nonviolent and those who were violently violent violently nonviolent. In other words, violence against the violent was not violence. What? That sort of was one of my experiences. I said, this is crazy. I'm getting out of this mess. And I did. Uh, so this idea of, 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 of rage against bad people, to baptize anger is so wonderful. Anger is such a fun emotion. And when I can say my anger is a righteous anger and I'm being virtuous by being angry at you, well, we live in a world full of angry people. And I will end this schmear by saying, be careful what you sing. If the Holy Spirit wrote it, it's worth singing. But this, this, this collection of cliches that has a wonderful melody to it, it's how Arius made the world uh, a crazy place and how a lot of people these days are working to make the world a crazy place. Um, peaceful rage, it, ain't no such thing. So I'll leave you with this thought. Cardinal George, uh, a wonderful, wonderful man said, these are strange times in which everything is, everything is permitted. Nothing is forgiven. All right. Uh, let us uh, go. Let's go to letters. I got lots of wonderful letters here. All right. Um, this is a fun one. Uh, um, the, um, uh, uh, this is from John in rural St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, I got it a while ago, but it's a great one. I have a question about uh, something in the Gospel of Luke. I can understand why Jesus says to carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, but to greet no one along the way. 
that doesn't appear to be Minnesota nice. <laughs> Here in rural Minnesota, we wave to everyone or at least say hi to strangers. Why would you say Jesus say greet no one along the way? Well, that actually is an Old Testament reference. One of the prophets was sent north and he was to greet no one along the way. You have to understand, Minnesota nice, you'll wave as you drive by. That's sort of northern Illinois nice, too, if you get out west. Um, you know, and it's, you don't really take your hand off the steering wheel, you just sort of lift it. And it's, it's nice. But greeting people in the ancient world was welcome. Come to my house for dinner. You have to eat and drink and, and, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, Jesus is saying to the disciples, remember the Old Testament prophet to whom I gave a mission. And then a false prophet said, no, the Lord's changed his mind. He said he wants you to come to my house to eat. And the prophet died. The prophet who had lied to him didn't, but the prophet who disobeyed the Lord had died. So that's what this is referring to. It isn't that you have to be unfriendly. I'm sure you can wave and say hello, but you can't go to their house for dinner. You're on a mission from God and you got to do it, um, you know, tooth sweet, as we say. That's French for tooth sweet. All right, moving along. Let's see. Let me do another letter. Um, there's an interesting, uh, I got a very interesting, uh, question from Anna. Uh, she was, she wanted, uh, Anna Maria, uh, she wanted a clarification. I said, God always answers our prayers. Uh, he always got, and I think to quote myself, I hope exactly, God always gives us what we're asking for, not what we think we're asking for. Um, that we see in the story of, the sons of Zebedee, whose mother comes up, Salome, I think was her name, and she comes up to Jesus and says, I want you to give me whatever I ask. I think if I remember the text properly, sometimes in one in one version, it's the boys asking for it, and the other one, it's mother. I go with the one mother was asking. Uh, it's what mothers would ask for. Grant that my sons sit on your right and on your left when you are enthroned in glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for, because his thrones of glory... His throne of glory was the cross, and those thrones of glory on either side of him were reserved for two thieves. They were. She was asking to have her sons crucified with him. So you see, sometimes you say, oh, Lord, I want to win the lottery, and you don't win the lottery. Well, what are you really asking for? You're asking for enough to bless the people you know, uh, uh, to live with some security. Well, the Lord can do that. The lottery doesn't do that. Uh, you win the lottery and you find out you have a lot of friends and relatives that you've never met before. And you give some money to a friend and you say you give a million dollars to a friend. He could have given me five. You know, that that the lottery, from what the anecdotal evidence that I hear, if it's a big amount of money, it has the ability to ruin your life. So the Lord is always looking for our good. Whereas in my prayers, I think I'm looking for my good, and sometimes I'm not. So, Lord, I have this suggestion. This would be nice, but if you got something better, I'm easy. That should be the prayer of the Christian. Lord, teach me your ways. The prayer of the pagan is, give me what I want. The prayer of the believer is, Lord, teach me your ways. So I hope that I hope that helps. Well, we are going to go to another break. We will uh, come back with a word of the day. And... Um, uh, don't go anywhere. Well, unless you're in a car and you're going somewhere, but you're taking me with you. Oh boy. 888-914-9149. Can I stick my head out the car like a Labrador retriever? I'm just kidding. 
The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Oh, happy day. Happy day. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus walked. Oh, when he walked. When Jesus walked. He washed the sins away. A great song. Uh, who's it by? The uh, Hawks. Uh, Edwin Hawkins Singers, yeah. We used to sing that a great deal at a parish I was at in the inner city. And I think it's fine you want to sing it as an exit hymn, but uh, don't sing it as a communion hymn. That's my whole point here. Well, oh, Gary, will he ever give up on this? I don't think so. All right. Um, just before we go to phones, I wanted to mention uh, a little something here. I, Celia, I kind of answered your, your letter about the Pharisees. And... Uh, uh, you mentioned the wine has to be consecrated in a gold chalice. No, it doesn't. It has to be. It should be in a a, 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 a chalice of a noble material that's non-porous. Uh, a communion bread has to be unleavened bread. No, in the Eastern Rite they use leavened bread, uh, but in the West we use uh, we use um, uh, unleavened. So. Um, it's, I hope I explained the Pharisee uh, Christian difference well. All right, um, let us go now to our word of the day. Uh, in uh, uh, Dan from Honolulu wrote me a letter, and he's got two obscure questions. I'll answer the first obscure question later, but the he also asks, um, the Mass ends in Latin with ite, misa est, the old Latin Mass. Go, the Mass is ended. But I think misa is the fourth principal part of mitere, to send, with a feminine ending. So is it literally go, she's being sent? Well, no, this is, I, I mentioned this because it is kind of interesting. The proper name for what we do in church on Sunday is the Holy Eucharist or the Eucharistic Liturgy or even liturgy, but Eucharist is the proper word, and it's Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. And I've shared with you many times how the, when the Messiah came, the rabbis said that all of the laws, all of the sacrifices of the law will pass away, except for the thanksgiving sacrifice, which was offered when you had been uh, saved from death. We wouldn't need sin offerings, we wouldn't need all that sort of thing, just the thanksgiving offering, because we've been saved from death by the Messiah. So, the word in Greek for... Toda, which is thank you in Hebrew, is Eucharistia. You still go to a Greek restaurant and say Eucharisto, uh, I thank you, to the waiter. So uh, that's what it is. Now, that word trans lifted directly into Latin. They didn't They didn't call it the grazia. <laughs> they, they call it the Eucharistia. And it's feminine. It ends in an A. It's a feminine ending. Now, mito means I send, I dismiss, I end. So when they said ite, which is go, y'all go, it's plural, plural imperative. Uh, um, in the Chicago plural, of course, is use, use guys, you go. Uh, so uh, ite, misa est. It literally means she's dismissed. The word dismiss has this word misa in it. So uh, the Eucharist is dismissed. 
So all these centuries, you know, you pray the prayer of St. Peter at Mass and you snooze through it. The final thing you hear is, Ite Misa asked, oh, all right, I'm out of here. You know, so we've been calling it the finished, the, the done, the done deal. Um, and a lot of people wax poetic about it. That really means you're sent out and all that. No, it means you can go. Mass is over. <laughs> the Eucharist is over. So uh, eh, that's what we call it, history. Interesting. All right, let's go to phone calls. The phone is ringing. Whom? Sam from Stockton. What is your question for me? Buenos dias. My question is the Pope's infallibility. I have a son that left the faith about two years ago, and I tried to get him you know, explain things about the Catholic Church. And he brought that up to me, uh, uh, that he don't want to come back because he read the uh, the uh, the thing on the Pope where uh, he says he's infallible. And he says uh, only Jesus Christ is the only perfect man. And I, and I, I didn't know what to tell him. You know, I go, I go, I don't, you know, I go, you're right. Jesus is the only man on earth that was perfect. He goes, and why are they saying the Pope is? And that's, uh, that's he's trying to say it's like a... a, a what do you call it? Uh, uh, you know, like it's it's idolatry. Know, that he's pure, no. pure, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't believe that. So, we don't uh, believe the we don't believe the Pope is perfect. Uh, there are lots of examples of popes who have been very, very imperfect in history. What infallibility is about is that Jesus has promised never to let the church down. Fallar in Spanish, which is close to Latin, means to fail. And it isn't right. so much about the Pope not being able to fail, but that when he speaks about faith and morals, the Lord will shield that institution from serious error. It doesn't mean that everything the Pope says or does is perfect, hardly. And there have only been a couple things infallibly taught in the history of the Church. Uh, and history bears it out. If you look at the history of the Church, uh, that... that um, we've we've had some really interesting popes in history, but you know what? The ship has always settled and moved straight on. Uh, that that uh, you look at the history of the church, and even when there have been difficult times, and leadership in the church has been less than perfect, far less than perfect, uh, the Lord has been faithful to the church. Infallibility is not so much about the pope never being wrong, which we don't believe. The Pope can be wrong. It's about Christ not letting the church down in the teaching authority of the Pope. Now, the, the, the Pope has no authority to change doctrine. There are all sorts of, uh, every single Protestant church is about an interpretation of doctrine or a change of doctrine. You look at what we believed in, say, the year 200, we believe the same stuff now. We may have different practices, we may have different customs, but our, our doctrine has not ever changed. Uh, and it won't change. A pope cannot change the essential teaching of the church. Not, may not, he cannot. And what infallibility is about is, is the, is the faithfulness of Christ to his bride, the church. Now, when they declared papal infallibility, uh, in the end of the 19th century, in the First Vatican Council, they were limiting the pope's power. There were people who thought if the pope says it, it's, it's Catholic doctrine no matter what he says. 
And no, the council said, First Vatican Council said, when the Pope speaks from the chair of Peter in his function as being the strengthener of the disciples, uh, and he speaks about faith and morals, then he's God's not going to let him down. God will not fail him. Uh, that um, that doesn't mean now. If if it's part of the usual teaching, we are bound to pay attention to it and and uh, to respect it. But infallibility is a very rare thing, and the doctrine of infallibility limits the authority of the Pope. A lot of there are a lot of Protestant sects that the minister says it, and it is gospel. You can't argue with them. Whereas <laughs> Catholics argue with the Pope a lot, as we as we've noticed from the past uh, the past century. So. I don't know if you want your son to listen to this, but, um, you know, he's maybe made up his mind, but uh, at some point he's going to realize that um, the, 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 the Catholic Church is the church founded by Jesus through the ministry of the apostles, and we have been faithful to what they have handed down to us. I hope that helps. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you. God bless, and thanks for listening. Who have we got now? Jason from St. Petersburg. Are you, what, what question do you have for me, Jason? Hi, Father. Um, normally, in the, liturgically, uh, the word prayer comes from the word orationem, so exaudi orationem meum orimus ora pro nobis. Except in the Gloria, we have sushi fe deprecationem nostrum, which is also yes. translated as prayer. And the priest mm-hmm. even in the Old Mass bows his head at that, at that line. So what's the difference between orationem prayer and deprecationem prayer? Well, not a lot. Oratio means a statement. Here are statement. Uh, Deprecationem uh, is related to the word, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, prex, pregis. Prex is is the Latin word for, it's another Latin word for a prayer. And deprecatio, deprecatio, uh, hold on, I'm clicking away as we speak here. I want to not just make this up. But a deprecatio is, is, oh gosh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it asks, it's actually asking for pardon in Latin. It's, it's, a it's, it's, an oratio is simply, it's the more inclusive word for a prayer. But the word deprecatio is an asking for pardon. Now let me let me look look at this uh, one more word I want to look at here. Okay, okay. Click the magic button to all knowledge and um. Okay, uh, it's a Latin word. Uh, the verb is precor, and it it really means a request. So you got requests, you got the general word oratio, which is a statement. Uh, and then you have a deprecatio, which is a begging off or an asking for pardon. Does that help? I think so. So basically, deprecatio is a specifically a request for pardon. Well, it's 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 a humbler kind of word. Deprecatio means I don't I don't deserve this. It has that implication, I okay. think. So uh, you know, uh, oratio is the, is the the more inclusive term. But we get the word pray from the Latin word for uh, precor, which is a deponent verb. It means an entreaty, a, 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 a petition. Uh, 
So I hope that helps. All right. Uh, I think the phones are quite open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We got Joe from Colorado. Joe, what's your question for me? Um, could you uh, explain where the uh, liturgical calendar came from and from, and also the, uh, I think you call them the snippets that we get uh, at Mass? The snippets. Oh, the script, the Bible snippets. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, uh, they always start out now, brothers and sisters. That's not in the text. And we get a little hunk of Bible and we think that, you know, I heard someone once say a, a text without a context is a pretext that, that you can quote a Bible passage, but until you see it in its context, you're not going to get the fullness. Like St. Paul is saying wonderful things about, about the Jews in, in, well, about Israel, you know, from them, the promises and the patriarchs and all this, because he's about to launch into the idea that, yeah, but on the other hand, you're not an Israelite by birth. You're an Israelite by covenant. Uh, so he's he's kind of softening the blow of the rest of the chapter. And you wouldn't really understand that stand, understand that unless you studied and looked at the whole chapter. So that's what I mean, that we get snippets of the scripture, and they should make us want to read more. Now, the other part of your question was, oh, come on, Brain, what was the first part uh, of your question? Uh, how was uh, <clears throat> how was uh, put together? Uh, oh, how was, how was the, the put calendar put together? Yes. We get the idea of the calendar from the Jews that, that, or from Israel that, that they, they had uh, in the Bible. You will read about the Israelite calendar. There were different feasts throughout the year. And being, being Jews, the first Christians you know, just continued to celebrate the calendar, but it, they modified it with the feasts that were important to, uh, to uh, to them, uh, for instance, uh, well, Jews celebrate Passover. We celebrate Passover too, but our Passover is the Last Supper, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, the death and rising of the Lord. Uh, they celebrated Pentecost. We celebrate Pentecost, uh, the offering of the first fruits to the Lord, the day on which the law was given. Well, that was the day in which the Holy Spirit, the true law of God, was given, and so on. So we adapted their feasts to our understanding of how those feasts had been fulfilled. And one reads the appropriate readings uh, from the scriptures that refer to those feasts. However, we go through the entire scripture, and after the, this, this to me is one of the reforms of the of the liturgy that I'm all for. That we do get more Bible now than we did in the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, that we have on Sundays three sections of the scripture, and uh, we have more scripture, and it's more varied in the. Uh, in the daily calendar. And so you will hear the Bible read through, not every single word, but it'll be kind of a, a reader's digest. Most of it is read. It's read through. If you were to go to church every day for three years, you would hear the whole Bible read through. So that's how we do it. We, we have an orderly procedure through the, through the text of Scripture, uh, but... We read the passages appropriate to certain feasts that come up in the calendar. Does that answer your question? Well, almost. I was just wondering who had the uh, final word to say. Oh, on, there's, uh, there's, of course, a committee that does. From the Vatican, or the Vatican Committee on the Liturgy. I believe it's the committee, the committee on the Liturgy. I believe. If I'm getting that wrong, someone should let me know. But it's it's pretty much a fixed calendar. It's pretty much a fixed calendar now. It, it can change, right. but uh, depending on the needs they of the world and the times. 
Yeah, so, like for uh, Christ the King. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, okay. for instance, uh, feast that Christ the King is a good example. It was a local feast that would made a universal feast because of the Cristeros, the people dying in, in Mexico for the faith, that sort of thing. So, you know, these things are not immutable. The law of God is immutable, and salvation by faith through grace is immutable. But, you know, what reading we read of a Thursday, that's that's quite changeable, and that's as it should be. Uh, that, that, uh, we aren't, we aren't Pharisees. And, and, you know, when I say we're not Pharisees, one should have the greatest respect for Pharisees. They preserve the religious identity of the people and the national identity in a time when it was, was about to be destroyed. And thus they gave us a great gift. Uh, my friend Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace. He always introduced himself, especially when he was talking to Catholic high school groups, like saying, by saying, I am a Pharisee. And they would go, what? Yeah, Pharisee was a noble person. So uh, I think that we need to, oh, something else noble. Somebody wrote in, I should stop speaking ill of Poles because I dissed the polka mass. And I pointed out the polka is not a Polish dance. It is a German dance. If I diss anybody, it's my own people. Like I always say, life is hard enough without being German. That doesn't count for Bavarians. I always say they're not real Germans. They're way too nice. But I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Who have we got now? James from Santa Cruz. What is your question for me? Yeah, hey, thank you for taking my question. Um, just want to ask, uh, there's a lot of uh, rift or uh, question marks on what's going on between, uh, you know, the uh, stuff that the Pope has said and traditional Catholics, Latin Mass. And I'm wondering, um, you know, you were just speaking about Pope, Pope infallibility. I was wondering, does these arguments and um, the concerns traditional Catholics, Latin Mass, et cetera, have validate the Eastern Orthodox argument that they've had for, that, you know, they were the true... Catholic Church. Well, you know, with the, yeah, there's a lot of controversy. And I would be very careful to say, well, the Pope said this, the Pope said that. No, uh, the press said the Pope said this. But no, I don't think it does because uh, the Eastern churches were identified from the time of Constantine on with the Roman state. It was the Roman religion, meaning the Eastern Roman Empire, whereas the popes, well, the, the the emperor said, you got to come to Constantinople, it's the new Rome. Said, no, we'll stay here where the relics of Peter and Paul are. The Western church, the, the papacy, has always maintained its independence of a state. Uh, the Vatican itself is a tiny state uh, that... that um, you can't just be Orthodox. You're Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. That that national thing. So I, you know, I, but I think on the other hand, when when an Orthodox person says we're the true Church, I say yes, you are. So are we. They truly have apostolic succession. They're truly churches, and they have been valiant in the, over the centuries, over the millennia, in defending their faith in Christ. So we we love them. We respect them. But the idea that somehow that they're the true church and we're not, no, we'll concede that they're, they're truly churches. And, well, so are we. But the, 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 the church based in Rome has kept its independence in a way that many Eastern churches have not. And I think that that changes their argument. So speaking of defending the truth, Drew doesn't have to defend it. He exudes it. So don't go anywhere. Listen to, listen to Drew exuding truth and the Divine Mercy Chaplet.